Merry Christmas. I know it's a couple days after Christmas, but I still feel in the spirit of Christmas. So I'm going to share a Christmas passage this morning. I hope that's okay with you. Um, first, I just want to thank our regular preachers for giving me this opportunity to speak this morning. Uh, we've had a great fall of ministry this year. It's just kind of great to look back over the year and see what God's done in our congregation and through us and uh, in the WANA ministry, which I'm closely involved in for the children. Uh, it's just been a real blessing to work with you know, around 50 kids each week, and uh, just praise God for the ministry we've had there. Pray for that. Pray that God would send us all the children he wants us to minister to this next semester. Uh, so this morning, I'd like us to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to look at this fascinating story of the wise men who came from the east to worship the newborn king of the Jews. And it's a story that's been sort of romanticized over the years, you know, through the nativity scenes and the Christmas cards. And you see the shepherds and the wise men all there at the manger. And so I, I thought we could start out this morning by doing a little fact check. You know, with the season of political cycle and the, and the debates, uh, one of the things that's kind of interesting after a debate is they have these people go on and do a fact check on their candidates and say, well, you know, they, they said this in the debate, but they really voted like this back when, you know, or, you know, they said this, but on the radio they said this. Or, so they, did a, they do fact checks, and so I thought we could do a fact check on our wise men, uh, these three kings from the Orient, as the, as the hymn goes, right? Three kings, we three kings from Orient are. So claim number one is that they were three men, some say are named Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. Actually, they gave three kinds of gifts. We don't know how many there were. That's why we think there was three in our hymns and stuff, because they gave three kinds of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There may have been many more men. In fact, there probably were, because they were bringing such valuable gifts over a long distance. They probably would have had a security escort going with them. It was probably a large group going down to Jerusalem. This is kind of going to kind of mess up your Christmas story a little bit. Sorry about that. But uh, second claim is that these were kings or wise men. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, they were actually called magi. It's an untranslatable word in the original Greek. It just means magi. They were a priestly line, a family line of people who studied the stars, and, and, and they, they became to be known as wise men, but they weren't actually kings. But interestingly, these magi were uh, king makers. They were closely involved in the appointment of new kings in their home country. They were from the Far East, the Orient, and the Bible does say they were from the East, most likely from ancient Babylon, uh, Persia area, modern-day Iraq, Iran. Another claim, they visited Jesus at the stable. <laughs> well, truth is that Mary and Joseph wouldn't, stay, wouldn't have stayed in the stable long enough for them to get there. Um, in verse 11 in Matthew chapter 2, it says they came to a house. So by then, they had settled down in the house, and Jesus was probably several months older by this time, when allowing time for the travel to get there from the east, and interestingly, when they dedicated Jesus at the temple, uh, they brought a poor man's offering of two turtle doves, not a proper offering of a lamb. Uh, you offered two turtle doves if you were poor. And if they had had the king's gift, or the magi's gift already, they would have been able, been able to afford a proper uh, offering. So they didn't have that money yet when they did that. All right, the star. Uh, kind of interesting to think about what that star was that they followed claim is that it was maybe a celestial event, like the convergence of a couple planets, like Jupiter and Saturn, maybe coming together to form the symbol of the fish that you have on your bumper stickers. I don't know. 
Um, or maybe a comet or a low-hanging meteor or something like that that kind of illuminated the area. Well, according to the Bible, the only true record of this star, it was a supernatural star that appeared for the first time when Jesus was born. And then when they came to Jerusalem, it appeared again and shone down its light on the specific location where Jesus was. So that's why I kind of lean towards maybe not a celestial event, but maybe the Shekinah glory of God shining down on that location. Kind of interesting to think about. Uh, another claim, last one, Jesus was the king of the Jews, the Magi we're looking for. And yes, this one is true. Uh, he is the rightful king as the son of God. You know, the Gospels each talk about Jesus in a different way. The book of Matthew presents Jesus as the king. The book of John presents him as the son of God. Luke, the son of man, and Mark, the suffering servant. And so we see here in Matthew that he's the king of the Jews, the one the Magi were looking for. So let's look at this chapter in Matthew 2 and, and read the true story of these Magi, these kingmakers who went a long way to great expense to find the newborn king of the Jews. Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream they, they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So first we have, this is after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and here we are a couple days after Christmas, so this is good. Which Bethlehem is five miles south of Jerusalem, if you could go there today. And I saw in the news this last week that they said no Merry Christmas signs in Bethlehem. I don't know what's up with that, maybe the turmoil and violence over there, but it just seems kind of wrong not to to put a ban on Merry Christmas signs in Bethlehem. But anyways, they come to the city of Jerusalem, having seen the star from the east, and they, and they ask, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Like everybody would know where the newborn king of the Jews is. This is a big deal. They said, we saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. And you know, that got everybody worked up, but not in the way that you would hope, not in the way that you would expect. See, Herod, the king, he was deeply disturbed because he was the current king. And he had gotten there by... Uh, violence, and he maintained his power over a long career uh, by killing people who were opposed to him. And he was now 70 years old, an old king, and now here are these kingmakers, these magi, come to worship and anoint a newborn king of the Jews. He's not too happy about that, as you can imagine. It didn't fit in with his plans, and he didn't want an uprising in his kingdom. 
his reaction is one of hatred, not one of joy at the receipt of the Messiah. Well, the people of Jerusalem, the Jews who had been waiting for their Messiah for centuries, you think they would have been excited about it, but no, when they heard the news, it says that they were troubled. The word is actually agitated. And they were probably worried about Herod's reaction too. What's Herod going to do now? Concerned about that. And then Herod, he calls in all the leading priests and scribes. The scribes are the people who studied the law, knew the law, the chief priests too. And he asks them where the Messiah was supposed to be born. And they tell him or remind him of that prophecy from Micah 5.2 that he was to be born in Bethlehem. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. But instead of showing interest or excitement that possibly their Messiah was born just five miles south of their city in Bethlehem, they, they could have easily run down to Bethlehem and checked it out. They didn't do it. You just see an attitude of indifference to this. They all miss Christmas. Did you miss Christmas? I hope not. Herod missed it out of jealous hatred. The Jews in Jerusalem missed it out of fear and worry. And the chief priests and scribes were just indifferent. Isn't that kind of the attitudes we see in our culture today? Uh, they hear the truth and they reject it because they don't want to turn to Jesus and give their lives to Jesus. Or they're indifferent. It, it could even be church people that are indifferent. You know, we've heard the story so long, maybe since Sunday school days and and we hear it again this year, and it's just hearing it again without it really affecting our heart. And filling us with joy as the wise men, the magi, were filled with joy when they came. Well, even back when Jesus was born, you remember the innkeeper? He was busy. A lot of us are busy. And that kind of keeps us from focusing on the true meaning of Christmas sometimes, too. You had the Roman soldiers at that time who were taking the census. And the only person they worshipped was their Caesar. You had the shepherds who went out and proclaimed the birth of Jesus throughout the town of Bethlehem. But you know what you don't see in the Bible after that is the town of Bethlehem coming to check it out and see. Unfortunately, a lot of times we're too busy. Well, if you missed Christmas this year, in case you missed it, this is a good passage to take some time to reflect on the birth of Christ, our Savior. And there were some that got it, though. Praise God that there were these, those shepherds who believed. There was Simeon and Anna and the temple who believed. And there were these magi. And why should they believe, though? You know, you think about the Messiah coming to his own people and they didn't receive him, as it says in John 1. And yet here were these magi from far away, these Gentiles who came from a long distance to find the true king. Maybe hoping that this was the king that would overthrow Rome, that this was the true king. But I kind of asked myself, how did these magi know about the coming of the Messiah anyway? What made them think to follow that star to Jerusalem, an unusual star? How would they think to connect it to this newborn king of the Jews? And well, as I mentioned in the fact check, this magi was a priestly line that went way back. And, and if you uh, trace back their lineage, they go back to the days of Daniel the prophet. Daniel the prophet was one of the greatest prophets ever. And if you remember the story in the days of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, Daniel in the lion's den, well, Daniel interpreted the king's dreams when none of the other magi could. These, this is the same magi line here. And Daniel was promoted over all the magi and one of the highest officials in the land. And he had great influence, and so did the Jews who were still in the land. And he would have taught them the prophecies 
of the coming newborn king of the Jews. He would have taught them from his own prophecy that he received while he was there in the land, in Daniel chapter 9, that there would be a period of 490 years, and after 483 years from the command, now stay with me, to rebuild the temple till the Messiah would be cut off, there would be 483 years. You can read that in Daniel 9. That's amazing. And it came true. After Daniel's prophecy from the command to rebuild the temple until the week Jesus entered Jerusalem was exactly 483 years. And so at the time of the birth of Christ, we think he lived about maybe 33 years, 450 of those 483 years had been fulfilled already. So there was an expectation among those who studied the scriptures, who studied the prophecies of Daniel, that there would be a Messiah born soon, that he could come at any time, he could come in their generation. And Daniel certainly would have taught them the prophecy of Balaam and Numbers that said a star would rise out of Judah, a ruler for my people. And they would have connected those prophecies that a star would arise. And this was about the right time for it. And so they were searching the scriptures and they knew he would be coming soon. And so they followed the star to Jerusalem. And now this unusual star led them to Israel. It led them to Jerusalem. And I just want to encourage us to do, to do the same. When God shines his light to us, and he's given us his light in the Bible, the word of God, that we would be faithful to search the scriptures like they did. For centuries, they held on to these prophecies. They searched the scriptures. And they followed God's light when he's shown it. God's given us his light. And he wants us to search the scriptures, to follow that light wherever it leads, to follow Christ. Well, now in verses 7 to 8, we see Herod calling a secret meeting with the wise men. He doesn't want to call another public meeting. He doesn't want these magi, these foreign kingmakers, making any bigger deal of this than it has to be already. He calls them in under the pretense of being interested in finding the young child so that he could worship them too. And he knows these men will likely find the child for him. And he wants to know when he is found, but it's under a pretense because, as we'll see here, he's not really wanting to worship him. And it adds a little tension to our story. Well, uh, in verses 9 to 11, a couple awesome things happen here. First, the star the Magi had seen in the east before appears again and leads them directly to Bethlehem. And not only to Bethlehem, but it shines down in a miraculous way on the exact location where the child is. It couldn't be a natural celestial event or a comet, in my opinion, because of that. Uh, probably that Shekinah glory of God. You remember back in the days of Moses when he led the people of Israel through the wilderness and there was the pillar of cloud by day, a supernatural pillar of cloud by day that guided them over those 40 years. And then at night there was a supernatural pillar of fire that guided them. And you know, to the people of Egypt who came to the Red Sea to pursue them at first, they only saw darkness. But on the side of Israel, it was light. God reveals his light. So maybe a supernatural shining of the glory of God in that location, which is pretty spectacular. So these magi come into the house, they see the young child with Mary, his mother, and they bow down and worship him. They open their treasure chests and they give him great gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. At last, the purpose of their long journey fulfilled. All that searching, all those miles, all that expense to go on this trip, and those great gifts and that escort that would have come with them, and searching and now finding uh, the, their Messiah. They found the newborn king of the Jews. 
Now, these are great gifts, very costly. We can identify with gold, right? We know gold was the most valuable gift at the time and still is a very valuable metal today. Uh, temples and palaces at the time were overlaid with gold. It was very precious. Frankincense we don't associate with so much, but at the time it was a costly, beautiful-smelling incense that was used for the most special of occasions. They used it in the grain offerings at the tabernacle and temple and certain royal possessions and sometimes at weddings if it could be afforded. Myrrh was also a perfume, but not quite as expensive as frankincense, but also very valuable. And they used it in the Bible as a perfume. Uh, sometimes they mixed it with wine as an anesthetic. You remember when Jesus was crucified, they offered him up wine mixed with myrrh, sort of an anesthetic. Um, it was also used in the preparation of bodies for burial, even Jesus' burial. It's kind of interesting that they gave him such a gift at his birth, a gift that could be used in the preparation of a body for burial when we know that Jesus was born to come into this world to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins, born to die for our sins. Well, when we worship God, do we bring him our best? Uh, maybe we bring some gold in a different form. Probably don't bring frankincense and myrrh. Um, but, you know, what are, what are the gifts we bring to our Lord? He asks us to come with the praise of our lips. He asks us, to give, sure. He asks us to give our lives, um, which he calls a pleasing sacrifice, an acceptable offering to him, offering our lives up to him, because that costs us. Well, before these wise men could return to Jerusalem to inform Herod of the child, God warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. In verse 12, verse 12 says, Then being divinely warned in a dream, that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. And Mary and Joseph didn't even get to settle down and enjoy living in Bethlehem any longer. We read in verses 13 to 15, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. I think about this, and it's kind of like God's secret service agents, the angels, you know, carrying out his will to protect his people. You see the angel appearing to Joseph in a dream and warning him about the coming danger and you know, you hear mythical stories about guardian angels. You sometimes see them in TVs and movies. And, uh, but they're real, you know? They're real, and we see that right here. I don't know if it's exactly one angel per person, but maybe they play zone, to zone, zone defense and not man-to-man. -man. I, don't, I don't know. Maybe that's a good question we can ask in heaven one day. Um, but I'll be excited to learn about that. And it'll be kind of exciting to learn about all the times God has watched over us, you know? Even times we didn't know about it and protected us and looked after us without even realizing it. Well, there's nothing that quite brings out a father's masculinity than a threat to his children, right? Uh, and we see that here with Joseph. It says, That night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary his mother and stayed there until Herod's death. Interestingly, it also says that's a fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. And that was 700 years before then. It's amazing. We have these prophecies from Daniel and Balaam and Hosea and Isaiah that happened hundreds of years before they were actually fulfilled. Powerful proof of the reliability of the Bible, isn't it? That we have these prophecies and we know for sure 
that they were written before the time of Christ. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls from this past century that turned up. They were written no later than 100 years before the birth of Christ. And so we know these prophecies were written before the birth of Christ, before they actually came true. And a hundred of them literally fulfilled in the birth and life and death of Christ. That's amazing. Powerful proof of the reliability of the Bible. So, what did they do with these gifts? You ever wondered that? What did they do with the gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Well, if they had had that money before at the stable, they would have used it to buy a proper lamb when they dedicated Jesus at the temple. But what did they do with it? Well, they had to flee to Egypt for safety overnight. And Joseph had to go to a strange land in Egypt with his carpentry craft and would have had a hard time getting by at first. And so these gifts sustained that young family just as God knew that they would. Isn't that amazing when we look back sometimes and we can see how God provided for us in the time of need? Sometimes you kind of wonder where that, how that need's going to be met. We have this looming need and then you look back afterwards and you're like, I don't know how it exactly happened, but every, we just got by. You know, the Lord provided for that need. And sometimes you get that extra blessing once in a while. I don't know if you've had that experience. I have. Where you get that extra blessing and it's just for that need you don't know about yet that's just around the corner, you know? And God is a sovereign God who looks after us and provides and protects us. God, we can always trust in God for our needs. Well, now comes the part of the story I wish wasn't there. You know, there's some parts of the Bible that are unpleasant to read and think about, and you kind of wish they weren't there. But the beauty of preaching through a passage like this, and if we're going to be faithful to declare the full counsel of God, you, sometimes you preach and talk about parts that are difficult to talk about. Sometimes parts aren't very pretty. Sometimes they're kind of ugly, like this part. And what we read here in verses 16 to 18 is just like that. It says, Then Herod... When he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Herod was furious when he realized the wise men outwitted him and went home a different way. And so he sent soldiers to massacre the young boys two years old and under in Bethlehem. Herod didn't want to take any chances. And Now this is probably not hundreds of children, like in the day of Pharaoh when he killed all the baby boys because the people were becoming so numerous. This was the small town of Bethlehem. Scholars think it was probably around 26, maybe no more than 30 children, but to me that doesn't make it any better, does it? It's such a great tragedy. Every life is precious. Every child from the moment of conception has value. Next spring, Alan Krim is on the schedule to preach on Psalm 139 when we go through some of the Psalms. That is a wonderful chapter of the Bible that talks about the, the beauty and intricacy and preciousness of life, even from the womb. And if you want to know about how, what God thinks about life in the womb and the value he puts on unborn life, read that chapter. It's just awful. Herod's crime is just awful. Not only is he having all these innocent children killed, he is seeking to destroy the Messiah, the Christ. That makes it all the more worse. 
Herod wasn't a Jew himself. He didn't really have a right to the Jewish throne. He got there through manipulation and power and, and killing. But by Roman authority, he was the king of the Jews at that time. And it's such a, such a tragedy, and it fulfills a prophecy from Jeremiah 31.15, it says. Um, and that Old Testament verse is actually, at the time it was written, was referring to the massacre of children when Babylon conquered Israel. And now it has a, more, a fuller meaning. Sometimes we see that in Scripture. We see something in the Old Testament that happened, and then in the New Testament, there's a fuller meaning and a bigger fulfillment of it. Well, Israel's weeping over this. And Rachel, the wife of Jacob, you know, Jacob was also renamed by God Israel, the founder of the Israelites. They're called the children of Israel. They're Rachel's children, her descendants. Figuratively, she is weeping in great mourning over this tragedy. You know, there seems to be a lot of injustice in the world, doesn't it? I mean, about every month now, we hear about some mass murder or massacre somewhere in the world. And you just wonder, where is God in all this? I mean, why, is, why are these things continuing to occur? We've had these kind of injustices throughout all mankind, back to that first murder of Cain and Abel. We have, we've become so desensitized to it. It's almost like when we see something on the news now, and like San Bernardino, we, it doesn't even phase us as much as it used to, you know, because these things are happening all the time. We've become so desensitized to the taking of innocent life, the unborn, that God has created. But we can know that in the end, according to the Bible, that there will be justice. That God sees all, and he is coming again, and there will be justice. We can leave things in his hands, because one day Jesus Christ is returning, and he will set things to right that were wrong in this life. And he will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, be the ruler over this earth that this world's been waiting for, and restore peace and justice to the world. We can trust God. For justice. Well, now a brief ending to our passage here in Matthew 2. It says, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Herod had died. Then he arose, Joseph arose, and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, that's Herod's son, was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. The end of the story tells us that when Herod died, an angel came. Joseph must have had an active dream life. This is the fourth dream where an angel comes and talks to him uh, and tells him to go back to Israel. They go back to the land of Israel and they steer clear, stay, steer clear of Herod's son Archelaus in the Jerusalem area, Judea. And God sends them up northward to a not-so-reputable town called Nazareth. Remember, Nathaniel said, what good can come out of Nazareth? Well, if you missed the spiritual significance of Christmas this year, I hope you won't miss another Christmas. I hope you never have another Christmas that, uh, especially after I messed up your Christmas story about the Magi, that will be boring again and uh, that'll just be the same old story. Never be too busy and miss the glorious reality of our Savior being born, coming into the world to be our Savior. Born, born to die. And may we be like the Magi who were searching the Scriptures carefully, longing for and eagerly awaiting for the coming of the Messiah. You know, we can do just that. Because when we search the Scriptures today, we can see that the Messiah 
but the Lord Jesus is coming again. Out of those 490 years of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9, I didn't talk about those last seven. There were 483 years until Messiah would be cut off. But then there would be another seven years on the earth when there would be a peace treaty between Israel and this prince, this ruler that rises up on the earth, which we later see in Scripture called the Antichrist, that breaks this treaty with Israel in the middle of those seven years. And that he would commit what's called the abomination of desolation, where he defiles the temple by putting up an image of himself to be worshipped in the temple halfway through that tribulation period. And Jesus refers to that event of the abomination of desolation and spoken of by Daniel the prophet in Matthew chapter 24. And he says that's connected right before I return in great power and glory that these events will happen. And so we know that's yet future to come. And God has given us a promise in Revelation 3.10 that he will keep his people, he will keep the church from that hour of trial, that period of seven years that Revelation goes on to describe, from the hour of trial to come upon the whole world. He's going to rapture the church. He's going to take his people up to heaven and spare them the horrors of that seven-year period of tribulation. And so when we, we are to search the scriptures, and we are to be looking for the coming of Christ, but you know what the Bible also says? It doesn't, it doesn't talk about the believers. You read through the New Testament, and you don't see the believers looking for the Antichrist. You don't see them looking for the signs of the tribulation. You know what they see, you see them looking for? You just see them simply and eagerly waiting for the coming of their Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's the expectation the church should have today. We're not looking for signs. We're not looking for a star, or celestial events, or an antichrist, a world ruler. We're simply and eagerly waiting for the coming of Christ. And we're told to be ready. We're told to be ready. So my encouragement to everyone is to search the scriptures. Read Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9. I would love to share with anyone, help them understand those prophecies better if you're interested in that. I really would because they're so precious, and about a quarter of Scripture is actually prophecy, so if we're not studying and searching the prophecies of Scripture, we're missing a lot of Scripture. And there's a lot of joy to be had in these prophecies. Well, let me close now uh, the sermon, wind down a little, and we're going to take communion. And as we do so, remember what the Lord Jesus told his disciples, that we eat this bread and drink this cup until he comes. Until he comes. And so we do so remembering that birth so long ago, but we do so remembering that he was born to die, that he was born to be our Savior, that we'll one day grow up and live a perfect life and die a perfect death in our place. His body on that tree, on that cross, was for us to make payment for our sins. What a blessing that is. And so we come this morning taking the bread now, reminding ourselves of his body that was given for us and the cup to remind ourselves of the blood that was shed on the cross for our sins. He gave his life that we might be forgiven and have everlasting life. Praise God. Lord, we just thank you for this passage this morning, and your word is so glorious, and, and it's like a, like a treasure box that we get to open this morning as we look into your word. This is the Magi presented great treasures. We thank you for giving us your light, uh, just like you gave the Magi the light and that you've helped us to come to know the light of the world, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. Maybe there's someone here who hasn't made that decision, but maybe they would this morning. Maybe today is the day they would make that decision and make that change of mind and heart and in their life and receive the free gift of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing in their heart that Jesus has risen from the dead 
and confessing with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, that they might be saved. So now we just take the bread and cup as our offering of praise to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. to leave here this morning after another song. We just want to be followers of Jesus who are seeking after his light. He has given us his light in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and he has given us, even better than a star of Bethlehem, he's given us the light of his word to follow. And as believers, my encouragement is to search the scriptures, to follow his light that he's revealed to us. And if you're not part of the body of Christ yet, that you would follow the star to the person of Jesus Christ, that you would follow his light and be saved from your sins. I've, I've memorized John 1 in recent years, and some of those verses come to mind as I think about this idea of the light in the world. He says, the light came into the world and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then verse 11, he says, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. For the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God has come in the person of his Son. He came into this world to save sinners. And we are so privileged to have his light today that we can come to the truth that there is a Savior, that there is hope for this world, that Christ is coming again one day. Lord, we just thank you for this word this morning and we just praise you, the God of all light and truth. And I pray that, for, that you would accomplish your will in each heart and life here this morning, that you would guide each by your light, whether it's to Jesus as their Savior for the first time or as a believer to be to rekindle that fire in them to search the scriptures again and that the truth of the scriptures might come alive in our lives and in our hearts and that we might be those like the early believers who were eagerly waiting for the coming of the Savior. We just praise you in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Break every chain, to break every chain, to break every... Sing it if you believe it. There is power. Every chain to break every chain to break and make this our prayer.